0: So Oliva uh, i passed the big milestone. I've got over 10,000 uh, Twitter followers. And most importantly, I beat you oh, to that wow. achievement.
1: This was your, your surprise intro that you weren't going to tell me so I, I could react spontaneously. Congratulations, buddy. I'm so, I'm so happy for you.
0: Of course, Benjamin is very online and puts us all to shame by his, his 26,000 follower count.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're, you're correct. I do have a, a lot more followers than you, Matthew.
0: <laughs> Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Issues podcast. My name is Matthew I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our head of program, Daniel Pryor as well as Benjamin Butterworth, the late editor and senior reporter at the i-newspaper and regular media commentator. This week we'll be discussing never-ending restrictions, GB News and Pride Month. Freedom Day on June 21 has now been cancelled. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced that the final stage of the government's roadmap will be delayed until July 19. The rule of six will remain for indoor settings, nightclubs will remain closed, while large events and hospitality venues will remain severely restricted. Let's start off with just the the general thought of, was this necessary and kind of inevitable after the emergence of the Delta variant, Daniel, and and the increase in case numbers in recent weeks? I remember we had a bit of a chat where you thought that the restrictions would be lifted and you were a little bit more optimistic on that front than I was.
1: Yeah, I I was. And then, you know, the the case numbers continued to to rise. I enjoyed your June 21 in the intro there, very kind of American way of Putting dates there. But yeah, I I think that this delay was necessary and and is justified 100%. And I think the government's case that they put forward for it is very strong. Obviously, there's been a fair bit of pushback. But once again, if you look at polling around this, it does seem like it's got broad public support. And I think that's because people understand that the emergence of this variant does pose a unique and new threat. And the best calculations that we have at the moment do suggest that just uh, another few weeks would have a huge difference in getting closer to the magic herd immunity and, and upping vaccine numbers. It does seem like this would have a significant positive impact on saving people's lives. Um, and I think that that's justified a few more weeks for what's ultimately not, whilst, whilst there are obviously serious restrictions still in place, uh, a lot of them are are not quite as bad as the, the kind of general lockdown ones that we've been used to. Um and I think that people will probably be better placed to to weather the storm of not being able to to go to nightclub.
0: Plus Daniel, you can wear your outrageous shirts for podcast recordings. You don't even need to put the colourful flowery keep them it
1: clean. It's uh, very, very fortunate.
0: So I'm I was originally kind of quite sympathetic to extending the lockdown, particularly as we saw the increase in Delta case numbers. That said, though, I'm, I'm having second thoughts, Benjamin. And the reason the reason why I'm having second thoughts is because although we we just did just have a, a day of nine thousand cases, it seems like the the increase is flattening out. Hospitalizations have risen, but the actual number of people in hospital hasn't substantially risen. It seems to be mostly young people in hospital. And now we have some pretty good studies indicating that the vaccines do work against the Delta variant, which kind of leads me down the line of thinking. Well. Deaths remain low, Hospitalizations don't seem to be a major issue. If you look at all the spring scenarios, the amount of deaths, we're we're way below it. We're we're doing far better than where we thought we were going to be. And if we can't open now, in the middle of summer, when we are widely vaccinated, when we don't actually have a variant that substantially escapes the vaccines, when are we going to be able to fully reopen? Is this delay really absolutely necessary, or is this excessively restrained behaviour by the government because they think people are scared of, of... reopening. And and most people, I guess, don't go to nightclubs. So most people don't care that much about this final stage. I mean, I have to
2: confess that when I first saw the first report uh, saying that it's likely to be delayed, my heart did sink. You know, I really wanted that it's just the idea of having all of your freedoms back in principle that uh, that I think is quite important just as a principle. And yes, I want to go to a nightclub. And yes, I'd quite like to, to throw something like a house party. But, you know, it's also lots of businesses, more importantly, that can't fill their restaurants or their pubs and, and theatres that can't make a profit. I think the fact is that the the number of cases has been rising so rapidly. I think it's been doubling several weeks in a row that the fear is that actually we only have at the point a couple of days ago is about 55 percent of people double vaccinated. So there was still a considerable group that were victim that could be victim and end up in hospital if you had a rapid growth in the next couple of weeks. And I think on a practical level. It was the idea that you might go back into lockdown if we didn't nip it in the bud in the next couple of weeks that was the thing that sort of persuaded me to the idea we needed this delay. However, I, I do fear that we've got ourselves in a position, and I, of course, have supported the lockdown the whole time. I'm not opposed to this stuff, and I'm not opposed to the, to the extension of a few weeks. But I do fear that the way that the public are so in favour of this, some of the polls show sort of three-quarters of people wanted the delay, that of how easily the government could be tempted to put in restrictions in the future, such as in winter. And I I think that, you know, that does become sort of a slightly dangerous game because these are massive curbs on our our liberty that that have been happening. And the other thing is that, you know, the virus spreading in itself can create the variants. That's how this Indian variant came about, because Mm. they've made such a mess of it in India, because it's spreading so fast and so you know the last thing we want is to create our own variant after the the supposed Kent variant that we already had because it's spreading here and that undoes all the work so i do think there's a logic for keeping it but um but, it, but it's remarkable that the extent of public support, and I wonder how that will be used again, maybe in the winter.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's, there's quite a fascinating question. Here. So the cases aren't actually doubling every week. They, they've gone up about 30% in the last couple of weeks, which is still a quite substantial amount, and you continue on that growth path, exponential growth curve, and it's quite worrying. At the same time, um, hospitalisation has been increasing, but if you, if you dive into the dashboard, you can look more specifically at the amount of patients in hospital. And we basically, the lowest number it got to was around 900 people in hospital at the end of May. And now we're up at about 11, 1200. So it's not a real substantial increase over the last three, four weeks of people in hospital. And that's kind of the period you'd expect. Now that might change, but it seems like more people are being admitted to hospital, but those people are quite young. They're probably getting a bit of oxygen treatment um, and then being sent home. So the number of people dying at the moment isn't that high. I think the best case the government can make is well, give us a few more weeks to finish off the vaccination, particularly the people in their kind of 40s and 50s who need need to get their second jabs as well as a couple of weeks to get that full protection to really dampen down the spread of the virus over this period. But yeah, I think I think that's right. That they, I'd like to see a lot more from the government in terms of what is the goal here? What are the next steps? Where are we going?
2: Yeah, but also the thing about the let's get the rest of the vaccines done is that, of course, we are ahead of the schedule considerably on the number of vaccines being administered and the vaccines are more effective. And so a question I couldn't help but think was, was it always slightly dubious plan? Were they not telling us what they actually intended to do in the first place? Because we're in a better position than expected in terms of vaccines and the efficacy of those vaccines. And so I wonder whether they always plan to delay it because, you know, we are doing better than expected. And I suppose the, I would blame, if, if you're asking who's to blame, I'd blame the government for leaving the border open because, you know, the idea that all these people, 20,000 a day, I think it was at one point, were able mm. to access uh, the UK from India because I suspect they wanted to do this trade deal. They were even going to have a visit to India with the Prime Minister. I think it was complete political incompetence that, that undid a lot of the work when everything else was going so much better.
0: So we just kept making the same mistakes again and again on the border, didn't we? We made it the start of last year, we made it the middle of last year, and then we made it by not closing the borders to India again. Do we never learn?
1: Yeah, there was, was a fantastic moment in PMQs yesterday. I think it was where Boris mentioned that we have the toughest border measures anywhere in the world. And <laughs> I just, what? I just, I just started laughing when he was saying this. When
0: you go to Hong Kong, you have to isolate for twenty-one days in a hotel. Twenty-one days from anywhere in the world, no matter where you're coming from, more or less. The UK has a limited set of red list countries. We have to isolate for ten days in a hotel. That doesn't seem comparable,
1: right? And th- th- there's a real possibility here that if if we'd put India on the red list like it should have been at, uh, at the time, then we would be reopening on schedule. And the the idea that I, I just find it amazing that the government has actually—it seems to have gotten away with this on a large level. It doesn't seem to be attracting much kind of public criticism for the fact that they got this so wrong and that it was for such a banal reason. I mean, we all love we love our free trade and free trade deals at the the Adam Smith Institute. We were talking about how wonderful the Australia one was and last week's podcast but for goodness sake it's um yeah it's, it's very frustrating
2: i do think that closing the borders is the sensible thing at this time because as much as i'd like to go on holiday i think when you've got the risk of all these variants when lots of countries aren't nearly as vaccinated as us and many have higher rates of covid than us and therefore you could have this mutation for me i would i would support a sort of Australia or new zealand style approach where the borders are basically closed, but for citizens in emergencies returning, uh, and everyone inside the country can lead pretty much normal lives. You know, other countries have achieved that. I know that some people have used the example of, of Melbourne in Australia, where they had that strict policy, but still the Indian variant got in. Well, sure, but it is in a tiny amount and the restrictions they put in place were to stop sort of any spread of that at all going on, not because it had become a a serious problem. Uh, And so I think, you know, they've got the right attitude. and, And as Matthew will know, uh, they've been living life normally for, for quite a while. And if only if only we'd been able to live like that.
1: Right. I remember um, I, I think it was on GB News. Dan Wooten was using the, the Australia example and saying, well, of course, you know, they had strict uh, uh, restrictions and yet the Indian variant still got in. But it, it really is a distinction between simply getting in and actually getting embedded and therefore being able to spread yeah. at any sort of length.
0: The other big difference across Australia, and the reason why they need to these hard lockdowns, is because there's almost um, no vaccine spread. That the number of people who've been double vaccinated is is less than five percent. So it, it and almost nobody's had the virus previously. So they have to keep their risk level very low. Whilst the UK could could shut borders, allow a very limited amount of spread. And I think you're fundamentally right that we are in a danger zone at the moment. In the UK, with these new variants, not necessarily the Delta variant, which which doesn't seem to escape vaccines substantially, but future variants develop and arrive into the UK that, that do escape vaccines and keep and will spread around quite rapidly because we have vaccinated so many people. But just kind of one last thought on the, the vaccine front in terms of where we are in the rollout. So the UK's speed of vaccine rollout uh, has really very much peaked in March, I and mean, it's been pretty kind of. Substantial, but stagnant since then, and a lot of other countries are now vaccinating more people every day than than the UK. Places like that we make fun of, like France and Germany, are doing more daily vaccinations per capita, and Canada, despite their limited supply because of the US ban, has now vaccinated more people as a proportion of their population overall. Um, so it really feels like the UK vaccination program is is falling behind a bit and doesn't seem to have that sense of urgency. We seem to have patted ourselves on the back for. an early achievements whilst not really thinking about keeping the momentum going. I'm going to throw in our thoughts about where we should be going next with the vaccination program. There's been a bit of debate about whether or not under 18 should be vaccinated. There's, there was an article in Delegar suggesting that the JCVI would recommend against that. And then we've also got questions about reassessing AstraZeneca for under 40s um, in order to spit out the vaccination program because that's apparently slowed things down. And then the longer term questions about booster shot and variants. I'm wondering Daniel where, where you what you prioritize next when it comes to vaccinations.
1: Yeah, I I definitely share some of your concerns about the slowdown in in vaccine pace, but I'd also say that a, a significant amount of that is due to kind of the delay between first and second shots as well. There's certainly some some slowdown more broadly, but I, I think it's worth bearing that in mind that maybe things aren't quite as as pessimistic as as first thought. But yeah, in terms of next steps, I mean, AstraZeneca for under forties for men specifically, I think is is a very good idea, and that's something we've got. We've got millions of, of az doses just sitting there unused at the moment and the the kind of worries about blood clots and a slightly um elevated risk are very very unlikely i should i should stress um side effect is doesn't seem to be the case for for men under 40 so we should definitely start expanding that the evidence suggests that that would be a, a huge net benefit in terms of public health booster shots i think we we've seen a few kind of a few of the vaccine manufacturers begin to to develop these in anticipation of the vaccine escape that you mentioned the idea that this could happen with a particular variant that's obviously great news that they're already working on that vaccine escape not really uh, a concern as of now as you mentioned not with the delta variant and even the the south african variant which seems to be a little bit a little bit more of a likely candidate for some level of vaccine escape they're still fairly effective against it and the the reduction effectiveness is is fairly small for now it's the worry about future um variants that are the real issue here. But yeah, booster shots and, and extending to under 40s, I think, for AstraZeneca, at least for men, is, is probably the key, two key things for me at the moment.
0: Benjamin, should we be vaccinating the under 40s with AstraZeneca and should we be vaccinating children?
2: I mean, for me, what what I find strange is how they didn't anticipate some of these shortages in supply. And I'm sure it's easier said than done. Obviously, it is. But uh, but the, the absence of supply and the fact that they haven't been able to seemingly to ramp it up. In the past few months, you know, is it not possible to to create more more factories, more places where the ingredients for these things can be made? Uh, You know, I'd love to know. I haven't heard much from from the plans about about how to increase the supply, uh, as opposed to how it was divvied up between countries. I think that AstraZeneca for thirty to forty year olds, it sounds like the evidence is that still makes sense. Under thirties, I think there there seems to be lots of evidence that it's slightly more risky to give the AstraZeneca than to to not because of the blood clot risk. For me, the question is about the teenagers and whether they should be vaccinated. And assuming that it's safe, I have no moral obligation. And I dare say that most parents and most teenagers themselves would definitely take it up. I think it would still be relatively high. But given we've got such a high take-up among the general population that we should be able to achieve herd immunity in this country, I would say there's a moral argument that once we've done all of the adults and we've got something like 85%, 90% take-up, which is herd immunity, then I'd say there's a moral argument that those vaccines should be going to the countries that have had basically none, where people's lives could immediately be saved by having had the jab, whereas for kids it would be about, sort of in this country, the luxury of, of having the greatest possible percentage of population. So I think we should start diverting those once we've done all of our over 18s. Mm.
0: On the supply issue, I I still don't think we have a clear answer to about why Wales is about 10 points ahead of England on first doses. The allocations are meant to have been pretty equal between the four nations and and, um, England's around 75% and and Wales is around 85%. So to some extent, there's a supply issue, but it seems like something else is going on here in terms of whales using up every last dose or really making sure that they use up all their available supply as quickly as possible. I think there's probably some work to be done on that front. I'm not sure whether or not we hit herd immunity just by vaccinating 90% of adults, particularly because under 18s make up a large proportion of the population, but also because there is some even asymptomatic vaccine escape with the new variants you might actually need to vaccinate a much higher percentage of the overall population in order to achieve herd immunity at the same time though there's there is that moral case to be made as well so i think it's it's going to be a hard balance um for, for the the kind of ethical question i suspect the government will lean towards vaccinating british children because they've, they've got the doses over kind of the internationalist effort but i'm not too sure which which way that will go in the end
2: yeah, I think I think the government will, um, and you can understand why it would act for its own people. But I do think, you know. It, there is a strategic sense as well as a as a moral imperative to start getting these to other countries, because you know the G seven didn't quite come up with with enough, as far as I'm concerned. We have to vaccinate the rest of the world if life is to truly return to normal. You know, you have all these questions, and we re- referred to it earlier about being able to to go overseas and border policy. Well, those things will only cease to be a problem when the rest of the world is vaccinated. And of course, you know, we are a trading nation; we're an island, and so the fact that that, uh, so many countries are further behind, uh, you know, aside from some of our, you know, European partners that have caught up very quickly. And by the way, uh, Daniel, you were right. Boris Johnson said at PMQs, he said to Keir Starmer, oh, if if we'd had you in charge, we wouldn't have uh, had this amazing vaccine rollout. We'd be just like the EU. Well, the EU caught up pretty damn fast. You know, he's really got away with it there, because although we should be impressed by our initial rollout, uh, it slowed down. And so the idea that we're in this position unparalleled to other countries is just no longer true. Uh, So you're right there. And I think that we should have a proper plan for vaccinating the rest of the world clearly the poorest most vulnerable nations should get priority but we have to do that otherwise it's going to be even longer and we're going to have even more risk of mutations that come back to our own shores and undo
0: our own work well talking about putting britain first time to move on to our next discussion about gv news TV News
1: has launched with a promise to lend an ear to some of Britain's marginalised and overlooked voices. And of course, uh, in doing so, featured our very own Matt Lesh on one of its first...
0: And Benjamin Butterworth before me, even. I think he, he beat me on the opening night.
1: Oh, wow. I'm, I'm sure you're very salty about that. I was in the studio for three whole hours.
0: Under, under the lights, spoiling...
1: I'm sure we're going to get a lovely competition of of airtime between the both of you. Uh, GB News looks set to broadcast news, opinion and debate programming throughout the day and the evening, Um, trying to contrast itself with some of the more traditional rolling news coverage channels. But with technical glitches, awkward hiccups, bad lighting, some might say, in the opening coverage, is the future bright for the first new news channel in around two decades now benjamin i know you yeah as you've mentioned made your uh, opening night debut on dan Wooden's show what was it like how did you find the experience did you enjoy yourself well i was really excited we
2: had a we had a rehearsal a week before it went live and mm-hmm. i don't think i've rehearsed anything since sort of a school play aged about 12 so just that was very exciting certainly the atmosphere in there when i got there and i um but the idea that you had you know, Nigel Farage and the former Labour MP, Gloria Di Piero, people like that gathered around was, was quite exciting. The programme itself, I, I've been watching it this week and I, they clearly have problems with the cameras. It's fuzzy on TV. And I pres- can only assume with an informed guess that that's more to do with the technology, uh, as is the sound problems they've had, than it is poor quality equipment it's an entirely digital system they're doing and so I think it must be to be something to do with the way that's set up that it's not looking right on television and they've also they've had so many problems with you know they plan to go to a guest and the guest isn't there and the idents coming in and out and the music's in the wrong place so I do feel for the technical team I think it shows how hard it is to to set up what is essentially a 24-hour rolling news service or not rolling news but live tv in just a couple of weeks those staff have only been there a few weeks before it went live in almost every case and and i think that shows i dare say that they should have launched later i think they made a mistake to to rush it to air it's evident it's rushed because of those problems and you know they didn't do a big launch theoretically they did a soft launch the idea was that they would sort of work their way into into broadcasting. But because there was so much attention around it, they have a fe- You know, they haven't had a soft launch. Uh, mm. You know, I've spoken to people in the last week that um, that aren't media hacks or, or politics obsessives and they knew what GB News was. So I think it's had huge attention. And it probably would have been wise to to wait to launch and to have a, a more polished product.
1: I think that the thing for me is that I don't really have anything to compare it to in terms of a major news channel launching. So I don't know whether 20 years ago or, you know, when the, the ones that we're used to watching did first launch, whether or not they had the same sort of teething problems. I imagine that they probably did. I highly
2: doubt it. No? You know, I, I don't say this for the sake of being unkind to them because it's so difficult. But like... The extent of problems you know the fact that for example mm. and this terrifies me that there have been several examples where during ad breaks or rather during when there's meant to be sort of the program ident playing on, on camera, the camera the microphones are still broadcasting I mean stuff like that is, is my idea of absolutely terrifying because I, I don't know Matthew's like this but the amount I gossip when I'm in a tv or radio studio the idea that the broadcast to the nation is is pretty scary
0: maybe this is a good reminder for you Benjamin to uh, when there's a microphone in front of you not say anything uh, too controversial because it could always be recorded.
2: I was going to say it's like Gordon Brown at the 2010 general election when he uh, referred to a bigoted woman because he would left his microphone on after a meet and greet with the public and that was the great fail of that general election. I, I must avoid calling anybody a bigoted woman while I'm on air.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of saying controversial things in front of a microphone and yes Matthew I can do segues too. Uh, yeah, I noticed that you obviously came on on the second day of programming to Uh, commit the heinous crime of defending free trade and specifically the Mm. Australia-UK free trade deal. How did that go? Did you enjoy yourself?
0: Look, it was it was an interesting experience. It was it was very last moment. I, I had about mm. fifteen minutes to get ready, and I'd, I'd just been at the gym, so it was a, it was a very quick shower and, and doing my hair and, and trying to look respectable. Um, I did have the the fascinating experience that when you are waiting to go to air during the ad break, you can you can also hear what the presenters are saying, and a gentleman relieving himself that that came through as I was waiting. <laughs> Uh, at that moment, it was quite an interesting experience. At least it didn't go out live, I suppose. Uh, it was it was only to to poor me, as I would uh, say. So, yeah. I mean, I th- I thought so. I was on with um Colin Razier and Murat Simroki. and it was it was a kind of a good, pretty good chat. They they weren't um sycophantic uh, in any sense. I think Colin Razier actually asked me some quite tough questions about supply chain security when it comes to to free trade. Is that still a good idea? Um, gave me an opportunity to answer that, and and it seemed like quite a kind of serious affair more watching the show i think i agree with benjamin i, I watched the opening night and it, it did seem a bit unpolished and i think they made a fundamental mistake not putting andrew neil to his best in the opening hour they, they did this um interviews with the, the other presenters across all the shows and i thought that was a bit boring and dry and, and they should have used what they had um last night which was this major interview with rishi uh, a, a big set piece yeah, interview set. With Andrew Neil at his best and what he's really good at doing, which is is those thorough, um, surgical interviews with people, and that would have been far better television. Dan show I thought was a little bit more entertaining, and I, I thought you did a, a great job, Benjamin, as the, the the one person on the panel expressing contrary opinions, uh, and and that was a little bit more entertaining. Some of it was I thought a bit strange, like the, the body language expert uh, and the the royal segment, and this is a, it's a little bit Dan Wharton, isn't it? And it's kind of entertaining and a bit of a mix between you know the sun and serious television. So I guess it's, it is what it is even if it's not always necessarily for me.
2: Yeah, I have to say, I've been watching it since. And I've watched Dan Witten's um, Tonight Live program the last couple of nights. And it is actually really watchable. And mm. and there is no doubt that, I don't think this of all the channel, because I've I've watched bits of most of pro- most of their programs now, but I think the Tonight Live with Dan Witten is different to what you would see, certainly on a news channel and comparatively to most other sort of Political talk shows, as you might put it, uh, because it, it's got a variety of topics. But also, he's got this sort of aggression, might be an unfair term, but this sort of almost pantomime character that he has on 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 TV. And actually, last night I was watching their their. Their version of a paper review they call it a media buzz it's not just about stories that day it's about sort of stories that have been lingering around and it was a lot more interesting than any paper review i've seen on the other channels in a long while mm. they had three guests you know they had someone sort of in the middle they had calvin robinson who's the sort of super anti-woke commentator and they had Kirsty gallagher who was one of their presenters Uh, and is obviously a a very well-known voice. And it it, it was just so much more interesting than others. Mm. The previous night they had Claire Fox and Darren Grimes. There's just sort of an interesting mix of people that I, even though I disagree with more of them than I agree with, I just thought there's a variety of opinion that genuinely was, was refreshing to see. And, you know, I've done some of those paper reviews on other channels and they do become quite straightforward. You have sort of the generic left winger and the generic right winger, because it's all about meeting that Ofcom balance. And it actually becomes quite stale and quite dry because you basically know what either person's going to say. And mixing it up a little bit is is quite entertaining.
1: Well, you mentioned the, the Ofcom balance there and there's some some media that has been discussing whether or not they're going to fall foul of Ofcom's impartiality rules I guess what what are your thoughts on that do you think that they are successfully meeting those sort of impartiality requirements they certainly seem to be from my perspective in that they they do get some very interesting and and often disagreeing voices on so far yeah I mean look
2: I think I am the Ofcom balance uh, <laughs> when I turned <laughs> up on launch night <laughs>
1: Congratulations.
2: but uh, but do you know what they're on Ofcom doesn't have impartiality rules. It's a myth. What it has is a requirement of balance. So, you know, you don't have to have an inverted commas, both sides of the argument. What you have to have is a variety of opinions and I think that GB News will probably be absolutely fine in that because the drama and the fireworks and the fun is in having a variety of opinions if you take talk radio for example the um, largely right wing radio station well they get all of their clicks and attention from pitting two people with completely different views Mm. maybe more extreme than you'd see in traditional outlets against each other and and, and watching what unfolds and I think GB News will be able to do that but the fact is you know you don't have to have for example a Labour a Tory person every five minutes you just have to have uh, different views and you have to have those spread across the schedule and so Ofcom's guidance is actually a a lot more flexible than is made out I think what people confuse is BBC rules which are much stricter because it's a public service broadcaster we all pay for than Ofcom rules and they're not the same thing and what you've seen in traditional outlets is that they basically broadcast along the bbc rules rather than the flexibility they have within the general guide
0: Mm. i I think there's the other key element of the rules as well is that it's about having that variety of perspectives but also being very challenging and asking critical questions and rebutting different opinions so as long as the the presenters even if they are presenting their own views as long as they challenge other people constantly and they're being challenged as well it kind of ticks the box of of not just being kind of a propaganda network and being you can still be kind of partisan without necessarily breaking the, the broadcasting code that's true and what i would say sort of not contrary to that but slightly differently is that there is this
2: big question it was trailed as is this the fox news of britain i know matthew that, that you said to me before it'd be more like sky news australia which has i think opinion shows in the evening but but isn't quite as radical as fox news after watching it for this first week I can't help but think it's it's really not Fox News at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm almost bemused by the brands that are pulling out over so-called hate speech because, you know, it's nowhere near that. And the fact that it was trailed that probably got it an awful lot of attention and has benefited it in the ratings because lots of people have heard of it because of the question about whether it would be Fox News. Much of it during the daytime is just like daytime television. And so when it says that it will do news differently well, it doesn't have rolling news announcements on the hour and it does have a variety of opinion that you might not see elsewhere. But I don't think it's that different and that might let it come
0: unstuck. I, I think there's this, this interesting word as well. I, I thought it might be like Sky News Australia, but it's actually not what it's really like uh, in practical sense because Sky News Australia does news coverage and they do on-the-hour news during the day, uh, whilst this is this is more of kind of like a magazine television channel. So it is actually okay. very different to anything else, any other format I've seen before. Um, some of my my friends, when we were watching it kind on of, the opening night, I, I may have had a few people over to, to celebrate the moment and watch you, Benjamin. The comment is it's a little bit strange not to have that news on the hour. Maybe that's just because we're so used to it. and um, Or maybe they should be more newsy and they should use the headlines more explicitly every hour. I'm not sure what the, the solution there is there. What I'm kind of just sitting in, though, more fundamentally is what is the viability of this channel? Putting aside for a moment advertisers pulling out, is there really an audience for what is a dying medium, which is traditional television? And there's a few kind of contradictions at the heart of GB news in the sense of, well, we, we don't you know, not going to talk about issues that don't matter to people, but we're going to constantly talk about culture wars because we know that engages an audience that gets people talking. And that's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, does that run out of steam? Eventually, is a thought that's going through my mind. Another thought that's going through my mind: if the other focus is on all this regional coverage, and they've got a, a very, very keen to highlight this, particularly in the opening days, that they have these reporters all over the country, at providing local news is that actually something that's going to resonate with people? Of course, your local news resonates with you, but does local news to another part of the country resonate with you in the same way? When you're only getting like a little smither of your local news, but you're getting 90% of local news is something that really doesn't have that much relevance to you. And that's why local news is, is traditionally broadcast by the BBC on local news radio or local news bulletins rather than as a national effort. So in terms of what the channel's trying to do, is is that something that is going to work in the longer run? Or is its it... Is it kind of everyone gets very excited about it. Lord, you a lot of attention because it's like the anti-woe, culturally conservative TV channel. And then in the end, people just kind of start watching it and they can't make any money. So it goes bust. Yeah,
1: on, on the regional news side of things, I think you, you're right that, you know, if regional news is not your region, then it, it's certainly very difficult to find it as compelling. And I think you've really got to have very interesting and high quality stories in their own right, if they're regional in order to get any sort of cut through and that just remains to be seen the kind of overall quality of, of reporting obviously they've got a, a good lineup for that so they, they could well do so but on the the kind of culture war side of things I actually think that they will be able to make that into a long-term proposition I don't think the culture war it might manifest in different ways but I don't think it, it's going to go away it seems like it's part of the wider sort of you know, repolarization of politics away from traditional economic disagreements towards more kind of cultural identity as one of the primary identifiers of of your political identity. I think, if anything, that that's only going to become more important over time, and and that trend won't go away. So I think they they're onto something there. I think that that does have long term viability, even if it's not some, I, I wish that there wasn't as much a focus on it myself, personally, I think that they're right to, to suspect that there will be into the future.
2: I mean, the question really is about scale. So are most people sat at home, worrying about England footballers taking the knee or, you know, transgender people and where they use the bathroom? No, most people aren't. And polling shows that, in fact, more often than not, polling shows that more people agree with these things than, than disagree. But the question is, is there enough people that will tune into it? Now, TV news channels get typically about 100,000 viewers at any given time. Uh, so that's really a much smaller than any main channels. Uh, it's more like the kind of numbers that a radio station might get even maybe a local radio station at times and so are there enough of those people that it would keep a core audience going on those questions yes I think there is and that's why for example they constantly you know top twitter and get loads of clicks on websites because relative to the scale of a tv news channel there are enough people that are super interested in those questions I think that it will be able to survive for a while because of the cultural questions. I think there's suggestions from some of the investors that they're as much interested in influence as making a profit. If you look at Fox News in the US, it didn't make a profit for the first five years. And it's easier to be a a commercial station over there than it is here. So I suspect they don't have any quick expectations of money coming back. What I'd also say is that I'm not sure if it has the guts yet to be as radical on those cultural questions as it might need to be to get that audience. It's not like talk radio, for example. It's maybe not even like LBC. It's been quite soft at the moment. And I wonder whether that's because of anxiety about, um, about advertisers and about the initial response and whether it's going to sort of tiptoe into these questions rather than go full throttled into being a cultural questioning station.
1: Well, let's finish off on that advertising issue, because I I agree, it certainly seems like they're going a lot softer than some of the other media alternatives that are already operating in this sort of space and trying to appeal to that audience. Nonetheless, they're getting an awful lot of very negative feedback on on the social medias and uh, and getting basically cancelled by or or attempted cancelled by a a lot of people that are concerned with advertisers working with them and you know you've already seen plenty of advertisers pull out or they've waited to see for the content and then after seeing the content I think it's even more egregious they've pulled out even though the content itself is very far away from I think what its critics would would suggest that it is is this something that we need to worry about from a freedom of speech perspective Uh, or is this just you know market mechanisms at work and a sort of feedback mechanism for what people don't want to see on their tv
0: I, I think it is a little bit disappointing uh, to see companies so quick to to jump to judgments and and effectively try to, in in many ways I think effectively virtue signal to their audiences on Twitter, I doubt their broader audiences have any clue or or care whatsoever, and therefore pull advertising. Um, I have seen some of the free speech brigade saying, hope not hate must stop their campaign against GB News and they should no longer have this free speech. And it seems quite contradictory to me that if people on the right are going to complain about being censored, they then, some of them are calling for censorship of... Um, somebody expressing alternative opinion—that seems absurd to me. Uh, if private companies don't want to advertise on GB News, that's a matter for them. That's that's not a matter for the state or the matter for for you or I. If you don't want to buy from IKEA because they won't advertise on GB News, you can choose to make that decision as well. Uh, it, it it seems like. I'd prefer we we didn't mix up politics with with corporates as much as we are. But if if they are to do so, I I don't think we should be doing anything to stop them. And I don't see this as a free speech issue. Is their commercial right to decide where they do and don't advertise?
2: I mean, actually, I completely agree with Matthew that ultimately these companies are entitled to not want to be associated, uh, just like consumers are. But I actually think that it's slightly more cynical than that. Because if you take some of these brands that maybe are trying to sell to to young people, to women, to, to homemakers, IKEA being an example of the latter, well, those people probably aren't watching GB News. And so when they write on Twitter that it's because they don't want to be associated with hate speech, well, I think that's quite a cynical way, because what they're really doing there is trying to virtue signal to the kind of people that follow them on Twitter. We're on your side. We share your values. Meanwhile, the actual reason they probably not bothered to advertise on GB News is because its audience looking at the past week is largely men over the age of 65 or the kind of people that it's not a useful use of their money to advertise to. And so I think they're actually making sort of straightforward commercial decisions and trying to dress it up as something a bit more glamorous in order to get another angle of advertising on Twitter. So I think it's it's just a bit more basic than, uh, than what they're claiming. I, I do think that... The channel will struggle to succeed commercially because it's very hard to make the money to cover a full news station from advertising alone. And there have been reports in the past in the newspaper and in the Financial Times that it's going to do a Fox Nation model which is this idea where you have subscribers that pay a monthly uh, fee for all sorts of additional digital content and that they build up relationships with the individual presenters who obviously are giving their opinions and should develop an audience specifically to themselves as well as to the channel. And so that you'll have loads of subscribers and that's what will make it commercially viable. Now, not only does that, that create the potential of enough revenue to, uh, to justify, but it also bypasses the threats of Uh, suppose, advertising boycotts. If it can do that, then it will do well. But the suggestions of the figures is that it would need something like 100,000 of those subscribers. Now, Mm. given that's equivalent to what will be a typical audience, and of course, you know, it's not going to be the same 100,000 people watching it all the time on telly, so they will have more viewers than that as a total. I think that's a very difficult model, especially if some of those advertisers do pull out that pay the bigger fees. And so I think... I think it will be around for at least two years. I think whether it survives beyond that is a real question.
1: Just before we move on, one of the interesting things you you brought up there, Matthew, was the kind of pushback from some of the pro-free speech uh, brigade on Twitter when it came to some of these advertisers putting out. And for me, it seemed to be of a magnitude a lot higher than I've seen previous um, sort of similar situations. People being very clear and getting a lot of support that, well, you know, I'm a... Octopus Energy or an Ikea customer for X many years and you know this is ridiculous and to be honest I think that that might make some of the other firms think again now obviously there's the more cynical kind of audience considerations there as well about well it doesn't really matter if someone in Ikea's mentions is saying I've been a loyal customer and I'm pulling out if in fact they're not a loyal customer and uh, they're a man over 65 for example that's maybe shopped in Ikea once or twice in their life but the broader kind of I think that the PR messaging behind this isn't quite as clear-cut of a win as it has been in other sort of situations where advertisers have pulled out of channels. And that sort of feedback mechanism seems to be becoming a little bit different um, to what it has been in, in the past. But to move on to our final section of the podcast, it's time to talk about all things Pride Month. Dust off your glitter, it's LGBT Pride Month. This marks 52 years since the Stonewall riots when the gay community in New York spontaneously demonstrated in response to a police raid of a gay bar. Uh, Benjamin, these days we're more likely to see police marching in a pride parade than harassing gay bars, uh, along with major corporations who have embraced their LGBT employees, or perhaps uh, you could argue more cynically decided to get involved with Pride Month based on our conversation in the previous section. Is homophobia uh, largely an issue from a bygone era, or is this something that we should still be extremely concerned about as a major phenomenon?
2: i mean look first of all i think it's great that uh in my opinion and this is controversial to some i think it's great that police march in pride and i think that is a a real indication of progress and i want them to be on the right side and and the vast majority of police uh, do a good job of dealing with things like hate crimes uh, and i think that's a, a good thing the question about sort of Uh, whether homophobia is gone. Well, I remember there's a poll just a a couple of years ago for Pink News when I worked at that website that found that about a fifth of people still think it's wrong to be gay. Now, they're going to overwhelmingly be people who are over 65. I suspect if you were to break that down by age group, you'd find, you know, under 35s, it would be a tiny, tiny percentage. Thank goodness. And so, you know, people of, of our sort of generation are unlikely to come across those views or to be the victim of it uh, by our own peers, which I think can create a big difference. Also, it changes a lot about where you are in the country. You know, if you live in a big city like London, for example, then in many aspects you could lead your lives without coming across any of these uh, views. But if you go to some rural areas, if you go to certain parts of London where it's more common, for example, Tower Hamlets, uh, then you might be more inclined to do it. So I think it depends a lot on age and on geography about whether you come up against these for me the thing about pride that i really like and i'm back home in in cheshire at the village i grew up in and i went into pardon me i went into waitrose the yesterday and it had a big sign with pride flag in the background and then it had writing on it about the importance of being yourself and lgbt uh, acceptance and there were little trans flags and bisexual flags at the checkouts now i never saw something like that growing up this is mm you know, not an area have a reason to think is full of bigots, but it's still a a sort of, you know, a village in the countryside. It's the kind of place where a big company like Waitrose could easily not put that sign up. You know, if you live in London, as, as we do, you see these things all the time at the moment in supermarkets and big companies. They have these adverts in the window. Think nothing of it. I was so impressed to see that, at my local waitrose in the countryside because that's the kind of place where it can actually normalise this stuff and the visibility of it. And for me that showed the power of corporations taking on things like Pride. And, uh, you know, I know many people, many fellow LGBT activists don't share this view, but I think that can do genuine help.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to have two minds on this. On the one hand, I think it is a sign of how much progress has been made, particularly amongst Western countries um, when it comes to LGBT rights, uh, the the extent to which you can look at the World Value Survey and just see over a very rapid period of time, it's looking 30, 40 years, uh, a decrease in homophobic attitudes to where even if they do exist, people certainly aren't willing to say it on a survey or express them in public. Um, is quite an extraordinary level of achievement. That doesn't mean homophobia doesn't exist or, or that there's not bigotry still out there, but the extent of progress that we've made is something I think very important to acknowledge, whilst also thinking about places where, There's been a little bit of backstepping, I think, in some of Eastern European countries. There's been a kind of populist backlash against LGBT rights, as well as a lot of places where uh, it is still illegal to be a homosexual, uh, where a homosexual act can lead to the death penalty, um, particularly across Africa and the Middle East. So I think it's something to keep in our mind. On the particular corporate point, uh, again, I get too mighty on the one hand i think it is a sign of the progress we've made and it reflects that and the fact that companies want to attach themselves to this both for the purposes of their staff and to attract customers and the fact that it's kind of cool um on the other hand though to be a little bit of a, a cynic there's a clear kind of corporate reason for this they're not they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts obviously they're doing it because they think signaling this is something positive for their customers
1: i i was i was just going to say i i I'm maybe less cynical than you. I think there's certainly a kind of um, a profit-seeking, cynical signaling thing going on here in, in some cases. But I do think that a lot of the time it's because a large corporate might have a significant amount of LGBT employees and there genuinely you know, is a, a groundswell of support for those sort of values within the employees of a particular company. I mean, you, you tend to get a lot of pushback from both the left and the right, actually, when it comes to things like pink capitalism for example i think that from the right the kind of case and that you made it quite well and strongly matthew is that companies shouldn't really be mixing up these values in a a sort of cynical way and they should stick largely to the business of you know uh, profit making and enriching their shareholders, the kind of Milton Friedman esque idea of of what a company should be. Yeah, But yeah, then you've yeah. got on the, <laughs> but then you've got from the the kind of more more left side of things, and a lot of LGBT activists share this view as well. Of well, actually, maybe BAE systems, for example, is bad for for marching during Pride with with Pride flags, and they should be you know they're kind of white, trying to whitewash some negative corporate activities with the language of LGBT acceptance. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, Benjamin, whether this kind of, I'd say support for for pink capitalism more more broadly, and the Waitrose example is a very good one, does that extend across the board? Or are there kind of exceptions that you'd make for where you think certain companies maybe are doing it in a more cynical uh, way?
2: I mean, look, you know, I think when companies do it for their UK arms, for their UK customers and branches or whatever, I just think that is fundamentally a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, if you live in a big city where no one questions this stuff, you might not appreciate it. But like my local supermarket example, it can have a meaningful effect. And more importantly, you know, not long ago, people were fired from their jobs for being gay, and now they can work for companies that put rainbow flags uh, Mm -hmm. up in the office. And it's easy to lose sight, because as Matthew referenced, this has happened so fast. It's easy to lose sight of what a change that is and how beneficial it is. Uh, And, you know, when workplaces have those cultures, that genuinely can change people's lives, that can encourage people to come out that weren't before. And so, you know, I just reject the idea that lots of lefties put uh, that it is fundamentally cynical or bad. But, you know, there is a real problem that they only do it here.
0: I, I think a good example of that would perhaps be HSBC, who proudly sponsors Birmingham Pride, but at the same time it is basically a sycophant for the Chinese government, particularly when it comes to Hong Kong related issues. Uh, and that certainly has a, a big impact on the LGBT community in a place where um, there isn't particularly strong protections for, for, for gay rights. and seems like a complete human rights contradiction. And I think the gay community then has to ask itself a tough question. Do we want to take money from HSBC in the knowledge that they are not particularly consistent in terms of protecting human rights?
1: Yeah, I remember from my uh, my tweeting and, and love of F1 that I saw Mercedes, the F1 team, had, had changed to rainbow flags and everywhere except the Middle East and a similar sort of case. And there was a big backlash from the, the Formula One community about that. But I think it's fair to say that it's not necessarily the same level of United Front as perhaps it once was, or perhaps it, it, it never was. We're certainly seeing some some internal conflicts amongst LGBT activists and people involved in this space. Uh, But on that note, I think it's time to come to an end for this episode of the Pin Factory podcast, which you've been listening to from the Adam Smith Institute. My name is Daniel Pryor. I'm our head of programs. And today I've been joined by our co-host, our head of research, Matthew Lesh, and our special guest, Benjamin Butterworth, the late editor and senior reporter at the i-newspaper, as well as... media commentator if you like what you've heard then please do uh, like us and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and we will see you next week for more political economic philosophical and banter analysis thank you very much for listening